If you brought your Bible with you, please turn with me to the book of Nehemiah this morning. If you're newer to studying the Bible, you're not sure where it is, just kind of open it up to the middle and you'll probably land in the Psalms and then turn left three books, you'll come to Nehemiah, I hope. Uh, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and Psalms. So as you heard, we're beginning a new study this morning. And it'll be a little different than our study of First and Second Peter. First of all, we're going to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written before Jesus' birth and ministry, uh, whereas the New Testament that we just finished in First and Second Peter was after uh, the death, resurrection of Christ and and the birth of the church. But also some other differences. First and Second Peter, it was an epistle. It was an instructional letter written to the churches. Nehemiah is what's called an, an historical narrative. It's an account of people and events, uh, historical events. And, and in fact, it's one of 17 in the Old Testament, uh, beginning in Genesis and going all the way up through Esther. And so those books tell the, the history beginning in the creation and all the way through God's plan of salvation. But what's really amazing as we get back into the Old Testament is you're gonna see by God's design that the people and events in the Old Testament point forward to Jesus Christ, to his coming, to the, to the purpose for which he came as a savior. So you'll see that as we get into it. Um, so our series then, that we're gonna embark on here, the title will be Rising from the Ruins. And as we get into it, if you're not familiar with Nehemiah, the reason for the title will become pretty obvious to you. And this morning, we're gonna be in Nehemiah chapter one, and an interesting question for our message title, and it's this, who cares? Who cares? Interesting way to start a series, I guess. There's only 11 verses in Nehemiah 1. We'll cover the whole thing. And the outline, two parts, the heartbreaking situation in verses 1 through 4, and then the heartfelt supplication in verses 5 through 11. So we'll take it a chunk at a time because there's quite a bit of background to unpack. But rather than doing all that up front, we'll kind of weave that in as we work our way through the verses. So we'll start by reading through just the first section, verses 1 through 4. And then we'll work our way through that in more detail. So here we go. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some of the other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, I've titled this first section, The Heartbreaking Situation in verses one through four. This is history, it's an historical narrative, but it's not history just for the sake of history. Again, the history in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, 
lays out God's plan of salvation and follows it all the way through to the end. And this text, especially as we will see next time, points in marvelous ways, specific, detailed, even numerical ways to the work that Christ came to do. So you can't really unpack an historical narrative without getting into quite a bit of history. And that's what we're going to do in this first section. And so verse 1 begins, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. And Nehemiah is the author of the book, and he has a Hebrew or Jewish name. His name means God is comforter or God comforts. And, and he gives the name of his father, too, just to distinguish himself from maybe other men of the time, also named Nehemiah. It wasn't an uncommon name. And the setting, it says, is in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while he was in the citadel of Susa. And so Kislev on the Jewish calendar would be November, December time frame on the calendar we're used to. And the 20th year is referring to the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. And that would be right around 445 BC. In fact, Nehemiah is the last, chronologically, the last of the historical books in the Old Testament. I know Esther comes after, but the events of Esther occur about 30 years earlier. And some of it may be even concurrently, as we'll unpack a little more in the weeks ahead. But it's around 445 BC, and Nehemiah says he was in the citadel of Susa. Your translation might say the citadel of Shushan. They're one and the same, just a different name for the city. And Susa was one of the capitals, one of several capitals of the Persian Empire. It was in what is modern day Iran. And Susa served mostly as a winter getaway for the kings. They would move there for the cooler temperatures in the winter time when it was hot back in other parts of their territory. And so this citadel of Susa was like a fortress and it included the palace where the king would stay, as well as a great hall where people would gather for various events. And here I got a picture of the ruins of Susa just outside the city of Shush, Iran. Now, this picture doesn't really give you a good sense of the scale because it's taken from up on a hillside, but it's an enormous complex. And you, there are scattered about it many remnants of the palace, yet much of the site has been either destroyed by war or looted, or the victim of kind of bad archeology span way, way back in the day. But you can see the enormity of some of these carvings and structures that were part of this complex. And these are 2,500 years old. Now this particular piece here sits in the Louvre in France and it comes from Susa. And it's a capital, the top of a column. And see above kind of the animal carving there? That's an enormous wood beam that, would, that supported this structure that was part of the citadel. And, and here, to give you an idea of the size, this is an artist's rendition of the entire structure. And that capital is that tiny little piece that you see there. There, these, ca these, these columns, there were 36 of them, and they were 70 feet tall. It, it was an incredible complex. And Nehemiah is in the citadel of Susa, the palace of the Persian king. 
and a question then that we want to consider is, what are these Jews doing in Persia? Why are they there? Well, for that, we need to unpack some more history. And I want to just do a quick 30,000 foot flyover of Old Testament history. Maybe you're new to studying the Bible. It'll give you a little bit of the framework, or maybe you've been studying it a long time. It might just be kind of a helpful reminder. But the Bible begins, as you probably know, in the book of Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings. It gives us the creation of the universe, of the earth, of mankind. And mankind was created in the image of God and was the pinnacle of God's creation. We, we were created in the image of God. We had freedom of will and we have the capacity to love. And we were created to enjoy fellowship with God and to bring glory to him. That was God's purpose in the creation, to share his glory and for us to reflect that glory back to him. But you don't even get through five pages of Genesis and you come to a problem. Mankind, with his freedom, chose to rebel against God. He sinned. He disobeyed God. And with sin, all kinds of evil entered the world. It was, it was widespread what would happen. Death entered the world through sin. And mankind is now separated because of his sinfulness from a holy, sinless God. So there was no longer that that close fellowship that God was looking for between himself and mankind. The entirety, the rest of the Bible is all about God restoring mankind's relationship to him. That's what it's about. And this plan would unfold through a specific nation that God would choose, the nation of Israel. And I call it a nation, but when it started, it wasn't a nation, it was one man, Abraham. And Abraham trusted God, and God said, I'm going to do a great work in you and through you. Through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And so this nation of Israel would be a pedestal for the display of God's love and glory and grace. He would show the world what it looks like when God is on your side. That was the plan for the nation of Israel. God gave Israel the law including the Ten Commandments. These were his requirements for what holiness, righteousness looks like. They were a reflection of God's character. Yet despite everything God had done for them, they, the, the Jewish nation is described as a stiff-necked and rebellious people. Kind of like all of us too. Their great prosperity, when God brought them into this land that he promised them, their great prosperity had dulled their spiritual senses. And so in their rebellion, Israel rejected God as their king. They said, we want a king like the rest of the pagan nations, like a, a regular man. And so God allowed them to have that. King David was pretty much the height of the national Israel, but it was all downhill from there. They began to follow the detestable practices of the pagan nations around them, including worship of idols and even child sacrifice, things that were detestable to God. They began to emulate these processes. And God continuously, through the prophets, pleaded with them, change your mind, turn around, don't go this way. But they were already hardened in their heart. 
And so they refused to turn from their evil practices. And the kingdom of Israel was split. You had 10 tribes in the north known as Israel and two tribes in the south known as Judah. It was a divided kingdom, two separate kings. In 720 BC, the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria and taken into captivity. And the remaining southern kingdom, they held on a little longer, maybe 120 years, but God kept warning them. He said, if you do not, if you fall into this same pattern, he even said, I'm gonna raise up King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and of Babylonia, and he's gonna come conquer you and take you into exile as well. And he said, you're gonna be in exile for 70 years. And beginning in 607 BC, that's exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered the southern kingdom and took most of the Israelites off captive and into exile. And really, if you think about it, it was a perfect consequence, perfect consequence for a nation that had embraced pagan idolatry for 70 years. They would learn what it's like to live in a pagan nation under a pagan king. And God allowed that nation to be taken into exile so that he wanted them to repent. He wanted to bring about repentance. Repentance is simply a change of mind, change the way we think so that we change the way we act. It's a heart change. It starts there. God wanted them to repent. Did you know that the, that the American prison system was founded on the principle of repentance? The, the thought was that with time in solitary confinement, criminals would become penitents. And so that's where we get the word penitentiary, a place for penitence. Well, God took his chosen nation captive. He locked them up for 70 years so that they might become penitent, so that they might repent. Well, God is just, and justice requires judgment. And so God judged them for their evil, but God's also full of mercy and grace. He not only foretold their captivity and their exile, he foretold their return. And let me just read you in Jeremiah chapter 9, a few verses, uh, 29, a few verses this morning. This, I'll read you verses 10 and 11. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a, a hope and a future. And through the prophet Isaiah, God said that he would raise up another pagan king to subdue the nations and to free them to return to the land of Israel. He even identified that king. He said it will be a king named Cyrus. And he did it 150 years before Cyrus was even born. This is the magnificence of the prophecy that's in the Old Testament. Detailed, specific prophecy. It's how God validates, this is my word. This isn't just some crazy people in, in ages past writing stuff about a so-called God. This is the word of God. And so... Um, God identified him by name. Isaiah 44 
says this, I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. And in Isaiah 45, this is what the Lord said to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and I bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. He raised, up, he raised up pagan kings to take Israel captive and he's raising up a pagan king to set them free again. See, the northern kingdom was captured by Assyria. Syria was later uh, conquered by Babylon and Babylon captured the, the southern kingdom. So now both of the kingdoms of Israel are back together captive and now there's a new king in town. The Persians, they conquered the Medes and formed the Medo-Persian Empire. They conquered the Babylonians. So now Israel is captive in Persia. So we went from Assyrians to Babylonians to Persians, and this is where they are. So what happened? Well, guess what? 150 years later, a man named Cyrus is born. Cyrus grows up and he comes to power as the king of this Persian Empire. This is some kind of prophecy, isn't it? Cyrus conquers, as I said, the Babylonians and the Medes. He conquered the entire known world at the time. And in 538 BC, he issues a decree allowing the first wave of 50,000 Jews to return from Jerusalem or to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And that happened under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Let me read you 2 Chronicles 36. It says, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put in writing, quote, This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Let him go up to Jerusalem to do this work of rebuilding. Now you might read all that and you might go, yeah, well, that's fine, Paul, but that's just the Bible. The Bible can say anything the Bible wants. The Bible can fulfill its own prophecy. It's just the Bible. Well, it's not just the Bible. Cyrus, he fulfilled the exact prophecy of God and it happened as exactly as he said and it is recorded in in second chronicles and it's also recorded in Ezra chapter 1 but take a look at something else this is something called the Cyrus cylinder this sits in a, in a museum primarily most of the time in a museum in England ever since it was discovered it was discovered in 1879 it was dug up in Babylon and it's dated to the, to the 6th century BC. That's the time of the exile. And this clay cylinder is covered in what's called cuneiform text, which was a written language of Babylon and Persia. What does it say? Well, among other things, this 
chronicles the peaceful conquest of Babylon by Cyrus and the call to allow the foreign exiles to return to their homeland to build their ruins and restore their religious and, and, and their social lives. The Cyrus Cylinder independently confirms key portions of the biblical account. And there's other evidence of these kings and the things that they did. It's not just the Bible. It's history. It's accurate, factual history. And God prophesied it before it ever happened. And it came to pass exactly as he said. So one wave of Jews returns to Jerusalem at the command of Cyrus. And a second group of about 5,000 returns uh, a little later under Ezra. But most of the Jews were not still back in the land. And this is where our account in Nehemiah picks up. So with all of that as the historical background, let's look at what it says. Verse 2. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Will that happen when Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered the southern kingdom? The walls were torn down, the gates were burned, and they were still in that condition. The first wave of Jews and the second wave, they rebuilt the city, but not the walls. They rebuilt the temple, not the walls and the gates. Why did that matter? Because a city without walls and gates is totally defenseless. There's no security. They can't dwell there in peace and security. And it says the people were in great trouble and shame. This is what's on the heart of Nehemiah. Now, don't think of these walls as like a, a big fence or even like the southern border build a wall. It's not a little eight or 10 or 15 foot wall. These are like fortresses. These are some of the walls surrounding Jerusalem. Now granted, this is the expanded wall that was built. Um, it was built later under King Herod around 20 BC but they were built upon and even used some of the earlier walls. And you get the idea, they were huge. This is the most famous portion of the wall, the Western Wall. Look at the size of that. The Western Wall, also known as the Wailing Wall, Jews still go there to pray because that is a wall that was believed to be closest to the site of the temple that was destroyed by Titus in 70 AD. Two weeks ago, Dan showed you a picture of the Arch of Titus that is in, in relief carvings lays out the history of the conquering of Jerusalem in 70 AD under Titus. So here's these enormous walls. And Nehemiah receives this report that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates, which would have been wooden, were burned with fire. So an important question, who cares? <laughs> who, who cares? I mean, God asked this very question, actually. Let me read you uh, the prophet Jeremiah 150 years earlier in Jeremiah 15:5. God says, who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Who will mourn for you? Who will stop to ask how you are? In other words, who cares about Jerusalem? Who cares? Why, 
would the city and the people of Jerusalem matter to Nehemiah? He was 750 miles away in Susa. He had a great job. He's living in the palace of the king. He's serving, it says down in verse 11, as cupbearer to the king. Now, the cupbearer wasn't just a servant who, like, placed the cup in his hands. The cupbearer was someone who first tested the cup to make sure it wasn't poison, and then he gave it to the king. He was a high-ranking official. He was one of the king's most trusted advisors and confidants. He was, he was elbow to elbow with the king of Persia. He was living a good life. He had security there in the fortress. So why would he care about what's going on back in Jerusalem, 750 miles away? He cared because Jerusalem was the capital of God's chosen nation. Jerusalem was the home of his ancestors. It was God's holy city. It's the place where God used to dwell in the temple. His presence, his glory was with Israel. But with their rebellion and their sin, the glory departed from Israel. God withdrew. And the city, the people were conquered. The city was destroyed. Who cares? Nehemiah cared. He cared deeply. He cared enough to inquire what's happening in Jerusalem. What are the people doing there? He cared enough to inquire and he cared enough to weep. Look at verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted in prayer before the God of heaven. How do you respond when you hear about the misfortune of others? See, how we respond says a lot about our character. Do we weep? Do we laugh? I read about a, a man who came home to find two little girls sitting on the steps crying. And he set down his briefcase and he ran over because he was afraid that they were hurt. And he, what's the matter? He asked the first little girl. And she held up her doll and he said, the arm has come off my little doll. The man said, oh, let me see what I can do. And he took it and he worked with it. And in a minute, it was back whole again. And he handed it back to the little girl. She wiped away the tears. And then he turned to the second little girl. And she, he said, and, and you, what are you crying? What is the matter with you? And she said, oh, I'm just helping my friend cry. <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful picture of compassion, of, 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 of caring for somebody else who has a misfortune? Well, Nehemiah cared enough to weep. Now, sometimes weeping is a sign of, of weakness. Oh, you cry, baby. Man up. You know, but that's not the case here. Jeremiah the prophet wept. The apostle Paul, he served the Lord with great humility and tears, Acts says. Jesus himself stood over the city of Jerusalem and he wept just before he made his triumphal entry. Because that was the prophesied day of his being revealed to the king, uh, to, the, to the nation as their king, as Dan taught about two weeks ago. And the nation would reject him and he knew that and he wept over the city because he knew the judgment and destruction that would come on them 70 AD with Titus Jesus wept weeping's not a sign of weakness for Nehemiah but of strength strength of character he cared deeply about the glory of God and about the welfare of others 
here's something for us to consider. What kinds of things are broken and in a state of disrepair around us? Maybe it's a broken relationship or a broken marriage or a broken family. Maybe COVID has revealed areas of spiritual weakness in your life or, or maybe even left some things in a state of disrepair. What things are broken down? What things aren't as they should be? What things leave you or others spiritually vulnerable? Proverbs, remember our study of Proverbs, for chapter 25, verse 28 says, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. See, we need walls. Marriages need walls. Families need walls. Churches need walls. Walls, boundaries, limits that keep us safe, that protect us. And when we have no self-control, when we're spiritually weak, we're vulnerable like a city with its walls torn down. So what things in and around your life are broken? What things aren't bringing glory to God the way they should? Or what things should we care more about and we don't? That's something we should consider. I had someone call me in tears this week because of something that an adult child had posted online. The child is in rebellion against the Lord. But what hurt the parent is that the things that were posted brought dishonor to the Lord and to those who follow him. That's what hurt the parent. It hurts so much because she cared so much about others and about the glory of God. What things do you care about so much that you're willing to weep over them? And are these things that God cares about? That's something we should consider this morning. What things do you care about so much that you would weep over them? Well, Jeremiah did more than just inquire and more than just weep. Verse four says, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You're going to find that prayer is central to the book of Nehemiah. It begins with prayer and it ends with prayer. And in between, there, there are 12 different instances of prayer in these 11 chapters. Nehemiah was all about prayer. And as a church, we should be all about prayer. In fact, we're starting a 40-day prayer challenge on March 9th, running through April 17th, Easter Sunday. And it's called Draw the Circle, and it's based on the devotional prayer book of the same name. The idea is that you identify certain things in your life that matter to you and matter to God, and you begin a pattern of prayer for those things. It doesn't matter if you draw a circle around them in your mind or on paper or even on the ground. That's not the point. The point is that you focus your care and concern around these things and you seek the Lord's will in prayer. So let's look next at the content of Nehemiah's prayer. This second section I'm calling the heartfelt supplication. How did Nehemiah pray? He says in verse 5, Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, 
the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we, Israel, we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Well, notice how he begins his prayer. O Lord, God of heaven. This is the same way that Abraham addressed God, the God of heaven. It's the same title that Cyrus used in his decree, the God of heaven. Jesus prayed, our Father who art in heaven. It's an important way. It's not that you got to use those exact words, but when we enter into prayer, we need perspective. We need perspective of who it is that we're praying to. I mean, I know we talk about a personal relationship, but sometimes we can just get a little too casual, you know, with the Lord, like he's just our chummy little buddy. We're praying to the God of heaven. We need to realize that. Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his command of love with those who love him and obey his commands, verse 5 says. We're praying, first of all, to a God who is worthy of our praise and worship. And beyond that, a God who's capable and powerful enough to intervene on our behalf. And a loving and merciful God who wants to do so. The only true God. That's who we're praying to. What's your perspective of God when you pray to him? I, I got a call a couple years back from a lady named Wendy who worked for me for many years as a corporate trainer. And she was excited. She had just come from a face-to-face -face meeting with the CEO of the Fortune 500 company that I used to work for. And she was so excited to tell me about it. But the best part for me was when she said, this is a quote, I can't tell you how good it felt to pray before going into that meeting. She said, no matter how big and important the CEO is, I know God is still bigger and he is on my side. Now, this is a woman who, when I first met her, she was not a follower of Christ. We talked about the Lord. We talked about it a lot, but she wasn't walking with the Lord. And several years after now, after my leaving the company, I get to hear this. Wendy is walking with the Lord. And she has a new perspective on who God is. I don't care. I'm talking to a CEO of a Fortune 500 company face to face. But God, I prayed first. I talked to him and he is on my side. See, we shouldn't just be looking at how big our problems are. We should be looking at how big our God is. That's what, that's, that should be our perspective when we enter into prayer. Isn't that what David did? You know, if you look at Goliath and go, you come up against the, the God of heaven. God was on his side. Well, compare Nehemiah's prayer to what the pagans must have been praying as they're bowing down to these statues of wood and metal. They were, they were exercising idolatry. I, I 
I had to cut it out for time, but I love the story of Dagon, one of their statues, and it falls over every morning, and they got to pick it up, got to pick their God up and stand it up, and like God's just chiding them, and then the next morning, you just hit this face down again, they go, what kind of God is that? You got to pick it up, it can't talk, it has no legs or arms that can do anything, but that's what they were worshiping. But you don't have to bow down to a statue to be idolatrous. See, an idol is anything that takes priority over God in our lives. It can be a career, a hobby. It can be a habit, a sport, a game. It can even, get this, it can even be family. If you allow it to take the rightful place of God. That can become an idol that we bow down to, we worship, we serve it with our time and our treasures. That too is idolatry. And I think if we're honest, every one of us has some idols in our lives. Some things that, at least from time to time, keep us from putting God first. Don't we? Well, Nehemiah begins his prayer with the proper perspective. One of praise and adoration. But then look what he says next in the middle of verse 6. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Now, it's common for us today to point the finger at other people. It's your political party, it's your values, it's you, it's your bad habits, it's your ethics which are responsible for this mess that our country is in. We like to point the finger, but Nehemiah saw himself as, as part of the problem. He said, we Israelites, including myself, we have acted wickedly, we have not obeyed your commands. Is your marriage broken, your family broken? Is the nation you live in broken? Then we should start with ourselves. God says, you know this verse well, 2 Chronicles 7:14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It has to start with us. The early 20th century evangelist Rodney Gypsy Smith, he was once asked how to start a revival. And he said this, go home, lock yourself in your room, kneel down in the middle of the floor and with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. There on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle repentance, revival, it has to start with us. And this is how Nehemiah began his work. It's how we should begin our work too. So he continues then in verses eight and 10. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, and then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and with your mighty hand. 
what's Nehemiah doing here in this prayer? He's quoting the word of God. He's reading scripture back to God. Now, I don't think he just said, oh, I got a problem here. I better go find some scripture. He knew this. He knew the word of God. And he allowed the word of God to shape his understanding of the situation and to shape his request in prayer. In other words, he let the word of God bring his will into alignment with God's will. And that's a really important thing. Robert Law said, prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done on earth. Not something. We, we need to bring our will in line with God's will. In the book we're going to use, Drawing the Circle, Mark Batterson says something similar. He writes, please read this carefully. You'll find this either at the intro or in chapter one. Please read this carefully. The goal of the 40-day prayer challenge isn't to get what you want by day 40. In fact, the goal isn't to get what you want at all. The goal is to figure out what God wants, what God wills. Then you start circling it in prayer and you don't stop until God answers. Many people today are preaching this gospel of a prosperity gospel. You, health and wealth and you just need to name it and claim it. You know, like God wants you to be wealthy and, and if you're sick or if you're not wealthy, you have a lack of faith because God's desire for everybody is wealth and health. And so their prayers are all about God giving them the things that they want. But we need to align our will with God's will. So does that mean we shouldn't pray about our health? Should we not pray about a promotion or a, a job opportunity? No, not at all. But we need to bring our will in line with God. So how do we do that? How do we know what God wants? Well, one of the most important ways is by allowing God's word to shape our understanding of the situation and to also shape our petitions, our requests, our prayers. You see, God's will is never contrary to his word. And the more we know his word, the more we understand his word, the better understanding we have of the will of God. And he reveals his will through his word. So what does God say about the things you're praying about? What do we find in his word? Well, let me take an example of our health. Maybe someone is suffering from a severe injury or a severe illness, and they're praying to God, and, and I hope they are, and I hope the prayer alert goes out so that the whole church can join them in praying to God. And the prayer is for healing, right? But that prayer should be shaped by what God says about our health. What does God say about our health? Well, for one, we find that God doesn't always choose to heal people. Not on this earth. Perfect healing is where? In heaven. And God says, keep your focus there. Keep your eyes on that. Don't be totally consumed with what's going on right here, right now, so that you lose sight of what lies ahead. I heard about some children who were asked to write down their thoughts on death 
And one little 10-year-old boy named Raymond said, a good doctor can help you so you won't die. A bad doctor sends you to heaven. <laughs> well, how's that for perspective? I think sometimes we need that. See, God's word teaches us that physical health is good. It's good, but it shouldn't become an idol because our spiritual health is far more important. Amen? It also teaches us that we were made for a purpose, to bring glory to God. So as we're praying about this, Lord, save me, heal me, give me another 10 years, ask yourself, what would I do with those years if God heals me and extends my life? Is it just so I can take that European vacation I wanted to go on? What will I do? How will I serve the Lord? How will I fulfill the purpose for which he's made me? See, this is how we bring our prayers in line with the will of God. We're praying for a new job, a promotion, a raise. Well, what are you going to do with that money? Are you honoring the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all that you have? Start focusing on the word of God and letting that shape your thinking. Even pray those verses back to God. We know God's not going to let us starve. He cares for us. We can, we can process those things, but we want to have the right perspective formed by the word of God as we formulate our prayers. It's, it's when we bring our will in line with God's will that he blesses and he answers those requests. So Nehemiah cared, he inquired, he prayed, and finally he got involved. Look at verse 11. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in, re in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So the man he's talking about again is King Artaxerxes. And in the chapters ahead, we're going to see what he does. He goes in and he petitions the king on behalf of the people of Israel. See, Nehemiah's compassion moved him to action. Some people don't want to know what the needs of others are because if they know, well, now they feel an obligation to get involved, to help, to do something about it. A teacher asks his class, what's the difference between ignorance and indifference? And one student said, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> Where you have it, ignorance, I don't know, indifference, I don't care. Again, a lot of people don't want to ask the question. They don't want to know because they don't want to have to get involved. I don't want to know what the needs of our missionaries are. I don't want to struggle. I don't want to have to carry that burden and pray for them. I don't want to know what's happening in a Sunday school. I don't want to go back there. Somebody might say, hey, we could use your help. I don't know. I don't want to know what my brother or sister is struggling with because I might then feel an obligation to get involved. I heard about a church that sent the following letter to its members. It read, our church was saddened to learn this week of the death of one of our most valued members, someone else. Someone's passing creates a vacancy that will be difficult to fill. Else has been with us for many years. And for every one of those years, someone 
did far more than a normal person's share of the work. Whenever there was a job to do, a class to teach, or a meeting to attend, one name was on everyone's list, let someone else do it. Whenever leadership was mentioned, this wonderful person was looked to for inspiration as well as results. Someone else can work with that group. It was common knowledge that someone else was among the most generous givers in the church. Whenever there was a financial need, everyone assumed someone else would make up the difference. Someone else was a wonderful person, sometimes appearing superhuman. Were the truth known, everybody expected too much of someone else. Now someone else is gone. We wonder, what are we going to do? Someone else left a wonderful example for us to follow, but who's going to follow it? Who's going to do the things that someone else did? When you're asked to help this year, remember, we can't depend on someone else anymore. Nehemiah could have looked to someone else, right? He had a thousand reasons to let somebody else care about it. He's 750 miles away. He's got a fantastic career. And it's an important career. It means a lot to the king and to the nation. He's living a comfortable, successful, secure life. And his, his background wasn't in construction. Let someone else do it. But here's the thing. Nehemiah wasn't about building his own kingdom or even the Persian kingdom. He was about building the kingdom of God on earth. That was his priority. And so he asked. He wept. He prayed. And he got involved. That was his priority, building the kingdom of God on earth. In fact, that was the purpose for which he was created. As, as I think back and look at the last couple years, I'm amazed to see how people at our own church have stepped up to get involved and to get things done to the glory of God. Just one example is the Sunday school wing. Have you gone back there recently? Have you looked at that? Some people had a burden for updating and improving our Sunday school wing. They cared, and so they asked, and they prayed, and they got involved, and now it's finished. Who would have known that during the past year, while they were working on that, attendance in our Sunday school would more than double? It has. And you go back there now, and those kids are in a beautiful room, and they're f the room's full, and they're learning the Word of God. And they're growing in their faith. And they're being equipped to go out into a dark world that's crumbling. And to bring the light of Christ into that world. Who knew that our Sunday school was going to grow like that? God knew. And he put that burden on someone's heart. Someone who cared. Someone who prayed. Somebody who got involved. And look at what God's doing as a result. So as we continue this study in Nehemiah, we're going to see in the coming weeks what God does. This incredible work that God does through an ordinary dude like Nehemiah who cared. So I want to wrap it up. Let's go back to where we started. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares about the things that God cares about? You know, my hope is that each one of us cares deeply about the things that 
God cares about. My hope is that we would consider where are the walls broken down around us? Not just the physical walls, but the spiritual walls, the relational walls. What things aren't bringing glory to God the way they should? Where are we vulnerable spiritually? What things should I care more about? And I don't. Maybe God's even bringing some things to your mind this morning and stirring in you. You could do nothing. And that feeling will probably pass in just a couple days. You'll get over it, so to speak. But God wants you to care deeply. And he wants you to commit those things to prayer. And these are, this is an opportunity we have coming up, even with this prayer initiative. What should I care more about, Lord? What's on your heart? How have you gifted me? And what can I do for you in response to pray about those things? And now some of these things might seem too big for you to do anything about. Oh, but this is a relationship that's been broken for years. This, this is a lifelong pattern of sin in my life. Or this is a person who has so many needs, I can't even begin to meet them. It may seem too big a thing, but think about who you're praying to. The God of heaven. The God of heaven. Nothing is impossible for him. He can do the work and he will do the work, but he wants to do it through you and he wants to do it through me. See, God's looking for people who care and he'll do the work through them, just like Nehemiah. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you give us great instruction in your word, Old Testament, New Testament, epistles, and historical narratives. You show us who you are, you show us what you've done, and you show us what you want us to do in response. And so God, as we continue the study in Nehemiah, help us to be a people who care deeply, just as you do. Develop that within our hearts, God, a deep care for the things you care about. Help us be people of prayer, seeking your will, not ours, but your will, God. And then stir us to action so that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. And that we would do that for your kingdom and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.